Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been back. Uh, we were anticipating having our third episode with our good brother, Ryan Hurd, uh, but that had to get rescheduled for some practical considerations, and we anticipate uh, having a session with me and Ryan uh, uh, in the mid of next week, and then we'll we'll post that hopefully toward the end of next week. But in between then, Dale and I thought we would get together and have one of our conversations um, uh, uh, rooted in some things we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And actually, I would like to, I think, I think one way of introducing our topic, Dale, is to, I want to throw it over to you and say, you were, you were talking to me about how you had uh, witnessed, uh, maybe we, we name and maybe we don't, but you had witnessed a particular exchange where someone made the claim, made a particular claim about uh, men's relationship to self-examination. Maybe you could yes. pick that up and let's talk about that. Yes. Um, so fairly sort of emerging popular level voice in the whole masculine and Christianity debate made a post where uh, he was basically criticizing people that do introspective analyses of root causes of sin. Mm. So one of the examples he used is, and he was, he was criticizing that saying that it's not helpful in your pilgrimage as a Christian. Mm. Uh, and he gave an example and said, uh, you know, when a man is struggling with porn, for example, mm. um, he can begin to say, okay, I've sinned. I've, I've looked at porn. Why did I do that? Well, maybe it's because of my relationship here as a child or this experience as a young man or this exposure to media or content or whatever. And uh, eventually he tangles himself up into a sort of internal uh not and misdiagnoses the root cause and therefore ends up justifying it using it to justify why he's doing x uh and then using that example he he basically said therefore we should not when we sin look inwardly about the motivations the deep core motivations on why we are this particular sin is manifesting in our life and my immediate reaction was to uh, type out a five paragraph long, just trying to dismantle because I what his claim was, because I think it's very, very unhealthy to sow that into impressionable young minds, especially young men. Uh, and when you have a platform um, where you are influencing people, you have to be very careful that you're considering the implications of your claims um because you could you could actually do a lot of damage um so one of the basic things that i wanted to respond with initially was okay fine it's true that we all because of sin and because of our deep uh need to justify our sin we can make a, a misdiagnosis of root causes however that does not mean therefore that what we should do is avoid any sort of internal dialogue to tease out past traumas that really have led to uh, various pathologies um, in which sin manifests. Um, I think 
It goes against the Western tradition. Aristotle said, know yourself, and this is the beginning of wisdom. Um, we also see uh, John Calvin talk about the reciprocal nature of knowledge of God and knowledge of self, uh, and how the two sort of move upward the more that we examine both. I look at myself, I look to yeah. God, I, I look to God, I look at myself, and this is how I grow. Mm. Um, so to just say we should not turn inwardly and do a sort of self-examination uh, can be dangerous for your spiritual pilgrimage uh, instead of helpful. Yeah. Even if you make even if you make wrong diagnoses along the way. So. Yeah, one of the things that I I find peculiar about a lot of rhetoric uh, that is tr that 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 makes claims like this uh, is and it's funny you put it that way that it's actually quite anti-Western. Uh, you know, the focus upon the individual and the fascination with the individual mor moral journey uh, is just part of our heritage. You know, you mm. Augustine's confessions don't make sense without that. Uh, and it's actually because of the impact. And this is this is this is, you know, I don't think an arbitrary claim. It is largely because of the impact of the Christian imagination that our civilization mm. has developed a grammar to look at the fascinating thing that is the individual life and the story. The Bible comes in stories. You know, the Bible is, is has always been, has been read as a collection of stories. Um, that is, of course, not all that we need to say. It is the case. It is the case that in a modern context, what we have seen is the development of an enormous amount of kind of self-care motifs, a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of development of kind of inward analysis that's more like a, a childish narcissism that just likes to navel gaze and never mm -hmm. likes to sort of look up out of oneself to see the splendor of, of, of creation in one's task, you know, with the face moving forward rather than, than curved inward. And that's a legitimate thing. That is a legitimate thing to resist. It makes sense that pastors would want to would want to resist a, a certain kind of self-analysis, but there's a great danger in letting that be, uh, there's a great danger, in fact, in letting that uh, 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 sort of hold the turf, as it were, yeah. on what self-discovery is. In point of fact, most of what we can criticize about that is precisely that it's not true self-discovery. It's a parody of self-discovery. You know, mm. if somebody's been in counseling or if somebody's been going to see the same psychiatrist for 25 years and they don't know themselves any better at the end than at the beginning, that's not really discovering yourself, even yes. if it has that kind of external vernacular. And similarly, a lot of what we label self-care is positively harmful. But that does not mean self-care doesn't matter. You and I, in fact, are going to talk to uh, uh, John Bolt in a couple of weeks, who just edited this uh, second volume of, uh, of Boving's Dogmatics. And one of the things that's ethics. interesting- Ethics, yes, sorry. Thank yes, you for exactly. that correction. Yeah. Uh, Boving's Ethics. But one of the things that's fascinating in that volume is that Boving again shows that he's a modern person thinking about modern concerns because you open up the volume and what has a big old section, a much bigger section than you're used to seeing, duties to self. There's yeah. this huge section on duties to the self and, 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 and the relation of the self to the self. And, it, and it's true that that, that that grammar, that way of talking is more popular now uh, than it has been in the past. But it, I, I think we would be 
we're we're being dangerous if we think that there are not gifts in that movement of the human soul and that movement of civilizational focus, as well as risks and liabilities. Um, yeah. For every uh, orthodox version of the Trinity, there's 12 heretical ones. <laughs> uh, yes. uh, that does not mean we don't want a doctrine of the Trinity. And similarly, for every movement that's healthy toward one's own narrative, toward one's own self, uh, 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 toward a Christian and, and not self-obsessed version of, of, of the discovery of the soul, for every one of those, there's a hundred uh, uh, narcissistic LARPing parodies. Uh, yes. But the thing itself is too precious, I think, to just throw away and say, don't yeah. worry about that. Yeah, I agree. You so you mentioned uh, sort of a narrative uh, of oneself, and <clears throat> that's very powerful. Our, our friend Jim Pachta talks about this a lot. Yeah. Um, and the way that I have started to think about this is because, you know, I'm getting older and I have a lot of things that I'm considering about myself, like what was my what is my story the the sort of christianity that was handed to me as a young man was uh here's what you are you are a sinner and then when god saved you you became a new creature and you must put off the old man and put on the new man and the new man looks mm. like this he has peace and patience and kindness and all the fruits of the spirit and all of that is absolutely correct but if we're just trying to sort of externally move towards that, which we read in the scriptures without understanding how God takes what we were before redemption and how he is using that to accomplish the fruit of the spirit, then we are not going to really grab a hold of that shalom, that peace that we feel from God when we are in union with Christ. And what I mean is this, um, when we talk about redemption, uh, one of the errors I see in modern churches, and this is an error in my own thinking, so this is not me sort of standing on a, a pedestal casting stones at people. I'm talking about me here. Redemption was always um, only an individual experience. God only redeems my soul, and that's the only thing that he's concerned about in redemption. Um, where, whereas the Bible, I think, pretty clearly talks about the redemption of the cosmos, redemption of all things, all of creation groans for the new uh, to be redeemed, to be brought back into perfect telos, mm -hmm. right, um, according to its nature. That's also true, but we can overemphasize that at the exclusion of what God is doing individually with me. He is redeeming Dale Stenberg and Joseph Minnick. Mm. And that means that he is redeeming Dale Stenberg, the, for, the fourth grader that was, you know, throwing things at the pretty girl and getting in trouble in class and sitting in the principal's office. He was redeeming the guy that got in trouble with the law. He's a dream. He, he's redeeming the guy that had a, addiction problems to drugs. He's redeeming everything, and it's precisely how he redeems that person that your gifts are manifest. So the the take someone that was maybe manipulative uh, and was like a ladies' man and played the game. Well, God can redeem that manipulative ability to become discernment in how to read people in a Christian context. So it's not as if he lost those impulses to manipulate. 
but God jujitsued that and redeemed it and is using that for the kingdom. Yeah, um, because it moves you, from being a, a tool you use for your own sake. Here's a set of gifts I have to get what I want versus here's a set of gifts I have to actually help the world in a transparent way where I'm not, I'm not using you and you know, I'm not using. Yes. You. Yeah. Yes. And you can't, I think that it would be, it's not that you can't, I don't want to overstate the case here, but I think it would be much more difficult to recognize your gifts if you don't know who you are and the way that you understand yourself is by dialoguing with yourself why did I do these things? What exactly was I trying to accomplish? So that internal dialogue is very important as we move from scripture and revelation into the self back out into revelation. This is how you actually become a mature pilgrim. So um, yeah, I'll stop talking there. But yeah, uh, I think that's an important thing to just note. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really crucial. I, you know, I can imagine somebody kind of having the itch and and maybe we'll spell out a little bit more uh, a little later in the conversation, just kind of what we mean when we talk about self-analysis, you know, what, what does that mean and not mean? I think it's helpful to clarify that. Um, But I can imagine, you know, a kind of initial itch being sort of like, you know, okay, look, I'm opening up the epistles of Paul. Does Paul actually say, uh, you know, analyze yourself? Well, he does say self-examine yourself. Uh, You know, that's, that, that's, that's part, that's part of the, the, the experience of Christians, but is this so emphasized? And one of the things I'd want to say is, you know, the, the stories of the Bible and particularly the ministry of Christ, I think are an interesting thing to look at on this front that, that when Jesus approaches a person, when God, and in each of those instances, that's quite literally God approaching a soul. (laughs) And that's what a Christian should see there. Uh, Mm. He doesn't say the exact same thing to every person. And in fact, those who are kind of fine-grained readers of the texts, who are kind of looking for the the clever, who can find, you know, are seeing the cleverness of Jesus, I think. Uh, Speech to Nicodemus in John 3, woman at the well in John 4, the Pharisees in John 5, the crowds in John 6, uh, his family and brothers and the Pharisees again in John 7, the woman caught in Mm -hmm. adultery in John 8, the man born blind in John 9. Each of those conversations, Jesus is a little bit different, and and, and it's very adequated to multiple registers, I think, of, of communication and mediating the goodness and the fullness that is himself. And and it's precisely that Jesus can do this and that that the gospel can do this because it's full. It pre-contains what what all human goods are arrived at. And so it's the the, the same message. It's the same same person who is the message in a sense. Uh, It is is connecting to people through their stories. And what we can add to that as a layer, and I think this especially gets fascinating and clear when you look at the book of Acts, Paul the Apostle is not disconnected from Saul uh, of Tarsus. Mm-hmm. Paul the Apostle becomes Paul the Apostle and is chosen because he's Paul the Apostle. It, it, because there's a, a set of things that make him fitted in the redeeming of those things for his calling. The very same things, that zeal that was used to oppress God's people becomes a zeal for love and for the yes. spreading of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Those things are connected. And you you see this, I think, in the whole history of Israel. I think you see this. It really quite literally is 
in a sense, the biblical motif that God defeats evil by turning it in on itself. That yes. thing that that thing that you meant that in my life I meant for evil, God actually brings spiritual fruit out of it and, and, and grows you toward love and toward redemption precisely in that thing that is shoving you away from redemption. And that then becomes this exactly the site of your that becomes the site of your your spiritual gifting. And I don't think and this is very crucial for us. That is not as opposed to a cosmic focus. The Christian, this is this is a Christian, a a a, a, a philosophical, brilliant insight of the Christian faith that if we have not eternalized, we are not thinking as Christians. The individual narrative and the cosmic narrative parody one another. You take the form of Christ into yourself. Your life, your life, an individual life becomes a little story of the fall and of redemption and of being raised up with Christ, hmm. but precisely as inflected through Dale Stenbergality or what Michael Ward calls Donagality in yes. C.S. Lewis. And Lewis reflects very, very precisely on this. Lewis, Lewis thinks about the whole cosmos, the whole show, what it means to be a conscious entity, even an ant, is to have the whole show inflected from a vantage point, the universal inflected from the peculiarity of your donagality, if you will, if you could put it that way. And actually, that's the reward of being a creature. Uh, and it would be, I think it's, uh, uh, we do a great danger to ourselves, and we wind up avoiding ourselves to the extent that we imagine you can avoid a certain kind of self-knowing. And, and maybe this is where we talk about that. A certain kind of self-knowing and mature and, and truly be able to, to move into maturity in Christ. I don't know that we should normalize the separation of those things in our speech. Uh, I, I think that maybe is very dangerous and perhaps reflects uh, inevitably a misdiagnosis of what exactly counts as maturity. Maybe we can mm. talk about that. Go ahead. Yeah, that was good. Um, those are excellent thoughts, brother. <clears throat> I think that um, one of the things you mentioned at the beginning, how, you know, we have uh, for every one good story of self-care, you've got a thousand crazy ones that have been in, you know, living somewhere in a big city, paying a thousand dollars a month to see a psychiatrist for 20 years and they never get anywhere. Uh, but I think that the rise of the phenomena and the grammar that we're using of self-care or internal dialogue or whatever language you want to use um, is prevalent now in the modern age because there are so many things that are pulling at us that mm. that that disconnect the mm. soul there's a disharmony in our in our life mm. and there are marketing agencies and media and everything else that script us into a narrative that puts us into our economic class or whatever so we have a whole bunch of voices in the modern age that we're exposed to that are narrating our identity for us that we unwittingly just sort of mold into if we don't have our 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 feet firmly placed on the ground so to speak and what i mean by that is unless we have a good understanding of our identity 
of who we are, then you are going to be blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Uh, and I don't think that this is a phenomenon that's particular to secularism. I think that I've seen it in Christian circles mm. as well. Um, you know, we talked about the rise of the celebrity influencer or theologian or whatever. And I have watched so many uh, sort of mm. maturing Christians simply adopt the conclusions from so many of these wonderful men of God without having examined thoroughly whether or not they believe that thing because they don't want the work. Uh, so I think that their identity is largely um, given to them. It's, it's almost like by osmosis rather than going humbly before God, their maker, and saying, God, what have you said about me? And then turning the eye inward and saying, what am I? Why do, why do I have these thoughts? Why do I have these feelings? What are going on with my emotions? What's going on with my body? My whole being, what am I? And then moving out in peace and saying, now I can feel confident to read this or listen to this or do this without the pressure, the social pressure of having to sort of fit into the little circles, wherever that, wherever that may be. Yeah. So um, I think that's peculiar to the modern age. And you mentioned uh, um, Bavink having sort of, you know, an eye towards us in the 21st century. And I think that's why he's got such a big uh, section in that ethic, the second volume of yeah, the Yeah, and writes book. books of psychology. I mean, he wrote yes. whole, he was fascinated with psychology uh, as, a, as a useful discipline. Uh, yes. Yes. And if we lose that, we lose something that I think God has given us uh, yes. as a gift. And so. at a time, I think what you point out uh, is a point that perhaps puts that together and it's given us as a gift precisely when we need it in a unique historical way. One of the reasons you don't find people talking the way we do uh, about identity and such, for instance, how did that become a thing? Part of the reason that's not such a big thing in most of history is because your personal narrative is fairly scripted and that's okay. And that is to say, it, it doesn't mean people's lives were less interesting in the past or something like that. I'm not trying to, you know, anything like that. Sure. But the point, but the point is, is that the, the available, uh, the, 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 the sense of who you are is given to you and passively received in such thick networks of overlapping circles of communal connection. Uh, and they're fairly rigid. They're hard to move outside of. Uh, that the that that the, the 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 personal inflection of those structures is kind of at the margins, whereas now the mm -hmm. commonness of the inherited structure is very thin, and the personal inflection of the narrative of oneself, of one's narrative, of one's identity, is quite a thick. It's irreducibly a thick thing. You know, going online and talking about masculinity on Facebook uh, is weird. Uh, I don't mean it's bad. I just mean it's a right. very, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a type of behavior that it reflects a modern expressivist individualist culture, just like everybody else, uh, yeah. because it's who we are. This is, and, and it's, we, we go join our little groups of churches or become confessionalists because we're trying to figure out what kind of Christian we are. We have identity, identity politics at the level of confessional labels, uh, yep. <laughs> because we're confused and we're unmoored. And I think what, part of what you and I are trying to say here is it would be unhealthy. And I think this is something Bob Inc. Has, help, has helped us in. It would be unhealthy and, and ultimately a bit dishonest 
to say that we're not unmoored, to say that we're actually not caught up in kind of the confusing whirl of things, which does not mean that doubt is to be valorized. It doesn't mean that our goal isn't confidence. Our goal does remain confidence. But if we just demand we're not allowed to be this way. So uh, let's go back to you know what we mean by self-analysis, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. To get there, just because I think that'll that'll help bring all of this together. You know what? What neither Dale and I would ever insist is you know take pornography as a good example. If you're watching porn, you should stop watching porn. That is never not true. It is true that what should be said to you is uh, it, it is true that one of the things that needs to happen is that you should stop watching porn. It is not true that if you stop watching porn, you have necessarily become more righteous. Mm. that's actually also true. And that's, that's, that's just Christianity <laughs> to mm. say that you can stop watching porn and not become more righteous. And so it does matter why you are watching porn. Furthermore, those who actually study this uh, very, very, in a very fine grained way would even go so far as to say the very type of porn you watch matters. Mm. Uh, it matters mm. a lot. In fact, uh, uh, and I think that that's worth saying out loud. Uh, and, and the point there is, is that the, 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 your drawnness to sin, we all have things that characteristically, characteristically inflict us, uh, uh, are not, they're, they're not just pure irrationality. Sin is pure irrationality mm -hmm. at its core, but inflected through a rational animal, your sins are not just random. They come from, from you. They're part of you. They're part of your story. How they inflect in your life is part of you. And it's you that's being redeemed. Uh, and so understanding how sin, it's not just that you're a sinner, but how I am a sinner. Yes. Precisely how I am, I am a sinner is also to be able to locate something that you can then bring before God precisely for his redemption. Not to avoid not to avoid so, so that process again to just to reiterate dale and i are not at all saying that the process of that discovery is is the thing you do before you stop some external sin stop the external sin what we what what it does mean though is the stopping of the external external sin is actually not the real measure of spiritual growth mm -hmm. you can stop the external and not grow spiritually that's just called pharisaism and yep. what gets really bad is when repentance this is i think that one of the worst moves we make today is that repentance just means stopping an external. Once there was this external, now that external is gone. That guy repented. No, right, <laughs> that's right. not true. Yes, <laughs> uh, yes. Repentance is a movement toward God. And there are plenty of people that stop behaviors and do not move in their soul toward God. And they are just as much a son of hell, if that's what they remain in, as they were before. And what happens in churches, I think, what can't the risk, the deep and great risk that can happen in churches, uh, if we're really concerned about souls, uh, is that we could make people feel okay just because they're very good. Some people are better at external rigor than others. Yes. And when that becomes the measure of who is in and who is out and who is healthy and who is not, 
that's a it's not not related to health i don't want to i don't want to go there there people who are who grow spiritually are capable of more external rigor and they perform that external rigor so i'm not disconnecting the two but when you get that relationship wrong i think you've made a grave 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 spiritual error that is going to really really hurt people um, yes i agree and um it reminds me of a conversation i've been having you know the gospel um when you get when you you always talk we always hear about sort of like gospel-centered ministry right gospel-centered counseling or something like that uh but what you just say about pharisaism i i want to sort of hone in on that and expand that and draw more light to it because i think that that is important and what you're saying is it very important uh and god give us ears to hear <laughs> um but when we talk about the gospel the good news we are talking about the gospel meeting us god jesus christ meeting me all the way down not just meeting me at some particular moment in history and sort of bumping me into a different direction and then i drift over here jesus meets me and jesus knows who i am better than i know who i am and i think what you're talking about this sort of external performative relationship to christian doctrine and and exhortations and commands in the bible don't do that thing you know, okay, now we're moving on to the next thing. Okay, don't do that thing. And then we think if we can just bat away all the external things, then we've arrived at the beatific vision. But Jesus knows what's going on with you. And I think that the reliance on a sort of bootstrap approach to sanctification means that what you believe in is your ability to stop sinning. It is up to me and what I do and the way that I sort of white knuckle through Christianity in order to arrive at more mature understandings of uh, God. That is the opposite of what the gospel does. Uh, the gospel takes filthy, broken people and it sees them and it begins to heal them. Hmm. It begins to restore right. them, to redeem them. So, uh, to, since we've been using porn, just keep it right there. Let's say you're, you, you know, you're a young man. You have a porn problem. <laughs> the, the jokes. I just there, like the uh, phrase. Since we've been using porn, he means uh, as an example. He means as yes, an example. yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Um, if if what you're doing in your life to sanctify yourself from your porn use is merely putting a, a um, protection on all your devices, you're locking down your internet, you have a accountability partner, you have a, you know, a, a group of friends that you all hold one of those are all good and healthy. Good. You should do those if you're do struggling those things, with pornography. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. But if you leave it there and you think as long as I can reduce my use of porn by 40%, then I am accomplishing sanctification without any other considerations on why you're looking at porn and what that tells you about you, then you are relying on yourself and you are not relying on the gospel. Jesus knows your thoughts and what you must do, I think, at least in my life, here's what I've been doing, is when I have sinful thoughts, I know that I'm having those sinful thoughts. You know that better than I do. And this is what you've redeemed. You've redeemed me 
with these sinful thoughts and these sinful behaviors and these sinful motivations. And I give it to him. And I say, you love me. And this is part of me. <laughs> uh, it's not like this hidden thing that's over here and the real me is the thing that sort of acts and moves in my church and my society and whatever. It's all me. And this is the thing that God loves in Christ. And when the gospel washes over those things, you do find freedom because I don't have to do it. I'm going to fall into the arms of my Savior, and he who has begun a good work in me will accomplish it. And I rely on that purpose. So I don't run from the nightmares of my sinful thoughts yeah. and my sinful desires. I lean into them and I say, you love me, and this is part of me. Yeah. Uh, and and so I think that if we are running away from things by mere outward performance and thinking that we can sort of incept ourselves by changing mere behavior into righteousness, then that I think is one of the great deceptions of yeah, the devil you see us you see a similar i think that's a really good point and and i think you see a similar you see a similar phenomenon in the workout community we talked about this a little bit in the in the, in the podcast before that there's a on the one hand that the new testament has so much language about weakness it is precisely for the weak man for the sick that need a healer on yes. the other hand there's an athletic dimension uh, to spirituality in the New Testament, which is why we, we were talking earlier about external rigor is uh, to some extent a measure of, 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 of somebody's growth or can be a, a, a measure of somebody's growth. Uh, but the but the way the scriptures I think speak about it actually wind up dovetailing interestingly with with what we see in these mm. other communities. And that is to say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. I am sure that the Bible would tell you, stop watching porn, stop this, that, the other, flee sexual immorality or whatever. But when we get to the, 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 the deeper cancers of which those are the symptoms, externals are the external symptoms. When we get to the deeper cancers, what the Bible really emphasizes is walk by the spirit. It's a positive movement toward God. Uh, and, and, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's not a pulling away to even to fill. It is a filling that shoves out another thing. Yeah. That yes. Something is always there. It never gets empty. And then you choose, you shove something in and something is shoved out. So what are we athletic in, in the new Testament? I think if I were to think where would the new Testament apply that athletic imagery, would it be really try hard not to look at porn? You know, is that, is that we're all, or is it be the gentlest, like, like, wash yourself in the gentleness of God and then be the gentlest, be scandalously patient, be insanely uh, uh, believing and hoping of all things, be athletically humble, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And I think what you would find is a person moving out of God toward just really into love. What you find is that other stuff moves away. And where I was going to parallel that is, People, you know, you see these stories of people that weigh 900 pounds or something, and they just, what is it eventually that gets them to lose the 700 pounds or whatever? And most of the time, it's not, it's interesting to hear kind of the collection of stories. You might know somebody that lost a couple hundred pounds. Most of the people I've met that wound up making a big shift in their health were not moving from shame, 
They were not just resisting things. It was not just about work, you know, you know, beating weakness out of their body or something like mm -hmm. that. It was that they moved differently. They might have tried diet after diet after diet or regiment after regiment after regiment. But when they stopped caring about it a certain way, when, when it became not part of this narrative, but part of this one, when the mm -hmm. whole exercise was reframed, all right, it's hard. That does not mean there's not sweat. That does not mean there's not movement. That does not mean there's not exercise. But you're not sitting there like, oh, I'm not going to become a bodybuilder. So I guess there's no use then. You, oh, sorry, I hit my microphone. Uh, 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 you're you're sitting there. I'm just I'm just getting healthier. That's it. It's that simple. Uh, same thing in AA. The other people that get this are Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. You don't. AA works largely, uh, it works, you know, but, but AA yeah. is a, a, a helpful thing for some people precisely because it is very, very, very understanding of weakness. And the threshold is just that you're in the program. Are you here and trying to lift the weights a little bit? All right, good, good. Uh, and they, and, and let's work. And, and what do they do? They sit around and expose themselves to one another. They expose yeah. themselves to one another so that they can minister to each other and help them stay in the fight. And it is that mutual exposure, I think, maybe one one way to talk about this, take this just one step further while we move toward a close. That exposure is something I think it's worth talking about. What does that look like in the church? Because one of the mm -hmm. things I think that would be implied in the in the in the sense of things that you and I are bandying about here, I guess, is that confessing your sins to one another, being somehow in churches cultivating an atmosphere of not, not in a way that violates decorum, probably separating yeah. the boys and girls, <laughs> yes. but in a way that it, mutual exposure is just normal. That's just normal. We just do sit down and talk to each other about our sins and help each other. It, the New Testament assumes that happens, and, yep. and I and I wonder if we do that. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, over the last uh, month, um, well, a little bit more than a month, I did a series in Sunday school in our church on uh, the Christian family, um, and uh, the structure was creation of the family, fall of the family, redemption of the family. When we were in the fall of the family, I began by telling the Sunday school class about shame. I said, I'm going to say things and you are going to probably feel hurt. Just keep in mind, I have failed all of these things I'm going to talk. I have failed to be a good husband, good son, good brother, you know, good father. I have failed all over the place. We all have failed. Shame is when we measure our failures against another perceived good that is just constructed out of total arbitrary thinking or by whatever we're measuring ourselves against that thing intentionally showing how it's contrasted from us. So this guy over here who makes $400,000 a year, beautiful wife, kids, private school, everyone's well-behaved, 
I'm not saying that those things are bad, but perhaps that person is presenting themselves in order for you to perceive them and feel bad about your little shack that you live in and the broken down minivan and the snotty kid that's screaming in church or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and when we measure ourselves against these things, these perceptions of what is better than me, we feel shame. Shame can be healthy, but I think that it's largely not a healthy thing that uh, we are relating to in the modern age. And I don't think it's a thing about modernity. I think it's just a human thing. So uh, it's okay to realize, and this is really what to sort of tie it all together, what you are so that way you're not operating from shame. And now when I sit down with the 400K a year guy with the Benz and we go out to dinner and he comes over to the shack, uh, I can just be me. I can be me fully. I can embrace all of whatever it is that doesn't compare to whatever he has. That's okay. And I, when I can minimize the amount of shame that I'm feeling and operating from, this is the magic of it. You start to unravel them. People, when they meet genuine human beings that are suffering and they're not operating from shame, that becomes attractive. Now their guards go down and their wounds begin to be exposed a tad bit more. And now we can fellowship, koinonia. We can be one with another as we are with Christ. We are the church. So uh, I think it's important to like, uh, breathe this into our local congregations. And one of the ways that we must approach it, I think at the beginning, is to be honest with ourselves about who we are and then say, God loves me and I'm this thing that God loves and I'm going to manifest my gifts and give them away to my brothers and sisters without feeling the need to feel shame all the time. I'm not in competition. When those environments uh, grow and bloom and 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 start to move out uh brother that's that's uh revival yeah <laughs> that's world right. domination yeah. uh that's <laughs> the world with love we're we're, we're Ren and stimpy all of a sudden no no it's uh it's, pinky uh, in the brain pinky i can't in the brain yeah, that's it. Yes. Uh, i never saw it not that i'd be ashamed <laughs> if i did but i just never yes. i'd never happen to have i'm just aware yeah. uh well great uh, yeah. I think, I think that's a good, I think that's a good moment to end on. I think that's a very, I think that's a, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't have anything else to say. I don't think, I think we'll, we'll can it there and, uh, okay. take us out brother. Yes, I will. And thank you for the conversation. This was a good one. Yes. My pleasure. <laughs> All right, uh, everyone, head over to davenantinstitute.org. You can also check out the YouTube channel. We're on all the podcast catchers, uh, Apple, iTunes, and everything else. So download the episodes. If you like us, share it with uh, uh, your friends. Uh, if you don't like us, just direct all your emails to Joe. Uh, but uh, until next time, brother, I love you. Love you too, man. And we will see you later. See ya.